0: And if you wouldn't mind take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the book of Philippians, the New Testament book of Philippians and Philippians in chapter number 1, Philippians in chapter number 1. We're opening this wonderful book of the Bible, Paul's epistle to the church of Philippi, and we've already explored a little bit about the wonderful relationship between the apostle and this church. As we continue on, we see a little bit more of the Apostle Paul's heart towards the people of the Church of Philippi, and we definitely want to learn from the pattern of the Apostle Paul. And so with that, if you wouldn't mind, look with me in the New Testament book of Philippians chapter number 1. Philippians chapter number 1, and notice with me in Philippians chapter number 1, and notice with me starting at verse number 9. The book of Philippians chapter number 1, and notice with me in verse number 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, and that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory of God and praise of God and if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible would you mark a phrase that we find in the book of Philippians chapter number one the book of Philippians chapter one and notice with me in verse nine and this I pray and this I pray and with the Lord's help we'd like to hit this message with that title this I pray let's go to the Lord together and let's pray Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for you being a wonderful God. and Thank you for your scriptures that we could study and that we could learn and that we could discern from. I'm asking that as we open up just these few verses that you would open them up in an amazing way. That it would increase our prayer life one for another. That you would help us to learn what it is to intercede and to talk to you concerning other people. Lord, With this message here, I'm asking that, again, you'd fill me with your spirit, that you would direct our paths, direct our hearts, that you would open it up. Thank you that we can trust you with your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the most fascinating studies you could do in the Bible is to actually study the prayers of the people within the Bible. And of course the Apostle Paul would probably be the leader of that because we have so many epistles written by him and that we could see that as he writes these epistles that he also describes to the people how I'm praying for you. Now have you ever asked the question, a lot of times we'll just generically say I'm praying for you, I'm praying for you, have you ever wondered how are you praying for me? I mean, what does that mean? Do you just say, Lord, bless so-and-so, and bless so-and-so, check, check. What do you mean that I'm praying for you? Well, when we study the Apostle Paul, we can see that he got specific in his prayers. And of course, we're thankful for the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that he took the time to explain to these folks how I'm praying for you. Now, as we learn what it means to pray for others... To take the pattern of the Apostle Paul, to learn to pray for others like Paul prayed for them, would increasingly, tremendously grow. Our own prayer life. How do we pray for others? How do we pray for something, someone specifically? We know that through the different churches. He had the church of Corinth. How did he pray for a church that was backslidden? He prayed for individuals. How did he pray for Philemon? How did he pray for Titus? How did he pray for Timothy? Then here is the church of Philippi. That is joined with him. For the purpose of the gospel. That he could trust them with the fellowship of the gospel. Under the furtherance of the gospel. For the faith of the gospel. How did he pray for these individuals who he knew that had a heart to see people saved? Well, if you don't mind, let's take this passage here and let's see how the Apostle Paul prayed for the folks there at the church of Philippi. The first thing we'd like to show you as we dissect and examine the Apostle Paul's prayer that we see, I pray that your love may abound more and more. I pray that your love may abound more and more. Notice again what the Bible says in verse number nine. And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Of course, it's helpful to outline the Bible when it outlines it for you. How did he pray? Well, I pray that your love may abound more and more. Now, of course, one of the greatest facts in all of human knowledge is the fact that God is love. That God is love. That's who he is. That's one of God's main attributes. And of course, how did we know that God loved us? Because he died for us. We love him because he first loved us. God was the pattern of love for us to learn from. So here Paul is praying to the Philippian church that their love would abound more and more. Now the idea of abounding here is the idea of growing and leaping and stretching. I'm praying that your understanding of love, that your idea and concept of love would grow, that You wouldn't be stuck with a small definition, but it would grow. In fact, let's understand more of this. He prayed that their love, again, would may abound more and more. How? In knowledge. Notice first of all he talked about that their love would grow in knowledge. The word knowledge here is the word knowledge that carries the idea out of experience. This isn't a book learning love. This is a knowledge that comes from experience that the more that I love people, the more that I'm able to love people. Does that make sense? It's a type of love that only comes by experience or knowledge. That as I put myself out there to love on someone biblically, as I love someone in Christ, and I invest in that person in love, that I learn how to love others as well. And I loved how to love others more and I learn to love others more completely it's this knowledge that we have we understand that there are inside of love there are different things that we have in love it's not just a feeling that we throw out Hollywood likes to put that definition of love that it's a uh, it is an emotional type of love but in fact the Bible type of love is a commitment type of love It's a commitment that of love that I have no hope in return. That I invest in someone that will probably never do anything for me. Now it's easy to love on someone if they're going to do something back for you. It's easy to love the guy who's a millionaire who likes to give out money. Sure, I'll be a help wherever possible. But how about the person that has nothing and that could do nothing? Can you still love on them? Well, it's the idea that we learn by experience to love on someone, to put myself out there, to commit to love and take care of someone, even if they cannot do anything back for me. And once you learn to love someone like that, you begin to love others like that. The people who don't know this type of love is the people who will refuse to love on someone if they're not going to get something back from it. They think that love is a two-way relationship. It's not. It's a commitment to love someone even if they don't have anyone back. And that only comes by experience. By actually doing it. By putting yourself out there. That as they love others, they will love more. Notice as he goes on. How else does he want their love to abound, to grow? I pray that your love would abound yet more and more in knowledge. Notice this. And in all judgment. The word judgment carries the idea of discernment or perception. This is a type of love that's able to perceive what they're at. This also carries the idea it's a type of love that knows the most loving thing you could do is say no. No. Some people have a misunderstanding of love that they have the idea that if I love them I'm going to give them everything. Well sometimes they don't need Everything. Sometimes you have to say no, no. Let me give an example. As a parent, there's a time where I tell my child no. All right, we all know the Walmart moms and the Walmart kids. I want a candy bar. I want it. I want it. I want it. I want it. And so what happens is the parent doesn't use discernment, he gives the child what they want. When the most loving thing the parent could have done is say no. And if they have a fit, no. And we're going to talk about this in just a moment. Privately. With no witnesses. (coughs) You cannot allow a child to do whatever they want. That is not love. A child, a teenager... Mark Twain said this, that whenever you have a teenager, the best thing you could do is put them with a box with holes. And when they turn 18, you plug up the holes. That's what he thought about teenagers. But we understand that teenagers lack discernment. They think they know what's best for them, but oftentimes they don't. Mom, I've decided I can stay up as late as I want. I can make it on my own to stay up till 2 o'clock in the morning. And if I choose to wake up for school, it is fine. I am old enough. I am (laughs) 7. The most loving thing we can do, no. No. Mom, I could be with whoever I want. Don't you trust me? Listen, I could trust you all I want, but I don't trust sin. No. No. And you understand there are certain times in a relationship that I say no. And it is the most loving thing I can do. As we work with kids, one of the things that we learn is that the kids feel loved when someone sets up boundaries and puts consequences Not because the consequences are evil, but because they love them enough to put a boundary. And they put a protection around them. And it's the most loving thing that you can do. We talk with bus kids and kids without parents and kids without fathers in the home. And they say, mom and dad, let me do whatever I want. And I didn't feel loved at all. I felt like they didn't care. And so I had to act up and I had to go steal cars in order for them to get to notice me. And we can understand the most loving thing that we can do in our relationships, whether it's a parent, kid, sometimes it's a friend to friend. No, I'm not going to go with you. That is something we should not do. And have enough character to say, no, that's not what we're going to do. No, that's not what we should do. And to say no, and not that it breaks the relationship, but instead it strengthens the relationship. When people understand it comes from an idea of love. When people people know that you love them, you can tell them anything. Anything. If they know that you love them. And we have to get to the place where they know we love them. Therefore we can say no to them. And they're not going to throw a fit. They may not be happy with it. But as they think about it. They say you know what they were right. And so Paul here is talking about that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without a... Th- or sorry, wrong verse, verse 9. And I, this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more. How? In knowledge, that means experience, that you go out and you grow. I want you to go love on people and learn about love. And... In all judgment, this judgment carries with it the idea of discernment. Being able to judge and say, I need to say no here. I don't have to say yes to everything. I don't have to feel the prayer, uh, pressure that I have to give in if I quote unquote love them. I want you to learn this type of love. Now Paul is praying to these people and he says, I want you to learn this type of love. You're mature enough that I could tell you that I'm praying that you learn to love people by knowledge And learn by saying no because you love them. I'm praying that you love that. What a wonderful prayer. He's praying for them that they would learn this for themselves. Notice there's a second thing that he's praying for them. He says not only do I pray that your love would abound more and more. But I pray that you may approve things that are excellent. I pray that you may approve things that are excellent excellent. Notice the beginning of verse 10. That ye may approve things that are excellent. The word approve here carries the idea of examining and testing. Examining and testing. The root of the word comes from uh, a word that's used for testing metals for purity. So I want to see if I've got a um, pure gold. So I'm going to do a test to it to see how pure it is. Here it's giving the examination that we're going to learn how to test and examine things for the purity. Now, excellent things are the things that are true from God. So what we're doing is we're comparing the things around us based off the purity test of the Bible. Does it match up? If it's somewhat close, it doesn't count. It's not, is it somewhat right? Is it more right than this? How does it line up with the Bible? That's the purity test here. uh, That you may approve things that are excellent. We're to examine and test doctrine, for example, to see how it compares about what God says. So we understand that doctrine is our belief and teachings. And many people have things about doctrine. We always have to compare those things to Christ. What does the Bible have to say about this? What does the Bible have to say about this? What does the Bible say about this? Whether it's music, We take this music, does it line up with what the Bible says about music? We take this doctrine, what does the Bible say about this doctrine? We take this teaching, well I heard from this radio preacher that he said aliens are coming. What does the Bible have to say concerning this? This is our purity test. And we have to approve things. Does it line up with what the Scriptures say? Now. We can love others who have different doctrine without approving their doctrine. And this is something we have to learn. That just because they believe differently doesn't mean they're evil and wicked and nasty. We can love on people without approving their doctrine, however. And that's something that we have to learn. Espousing a position or uh, allowing a position that's doctrinally unsound actually becomes more harmful than helpful even to those who are mature enough to know that there's something wrong. See, unless something is recognized as a weed, it's actually gonna get in someone's mind and start growing. Maybe I give an example. All right, so what happens is that you're bored and you have nothing to do, and so you turn on the Trinity Broadcast Network or whatever station's on nowadays. And so you start watching and you, what in the world is this garbage? And you laugh at it, but then you let it play some more. And you start listening, you know, hey, maybe they got a point there. And you start listening a little bit more. And next thing you know, you start sympathizing with it. Until finally, something gets inside and starts growing. And now you start approving of the stuff. That before, you would have said, nope, absolutely not, not going to happen. But now because you've sympathized, because you've allowed yourself to be exposed to it over and over. That's one example of it. We have to be careful with how we espouse things. Um, here's another example. Many people believe that, that we should get rid of all doctrine for, the, for everyone to get together and go soul winning. So, soul winning. So, you know what? Doctrine's getting in the way. We need to join together to reach the world. That sounds good in concept. However, with it, you start also having to allow other false doctrine to come in. And whereas the soul winning is good, the messed up doctrine will end up doing more harm than you did good going out together. This is a big deal. We know that According to the book of Revelation, that everything is going towards a one-world religion. That's the goal, and so already the seeds of it are in. Whether you had um, just forgot the name of the council, but they had two councils where they had the Catholic Church, they had uh, the Buddhist, the uh, everyone else all lined together and saying we want to believe in one faith. This type of stuff is mixing together. All the time, and it is to Satan is using it for the purpose of wrecking doctrine, wrecking good doctrine. Hey, you know what? Let's join together. And I know that you're Mormon, but that's fine. Join with us because we need more numbers. And what happens? That false doctrine will start creeping in. And even if you know it's false doctrine, just because you hang around it enough, it will start working inside of you as you start sympathizing with it. And so here. Paul is saying that I pray that you approve things that are excellent. I pray that you get to the place where you're examining and discerning things from a purity standpoint. And the standpoint of purity, the standard of purity, is the Word of God. Does it line up with the Word of God? And if it doesn't line up with the Word of God, we're going to stay away from it no matter how good the cause may be. Because we want to do things according to purity. We don't want things to become impure because we've allowed them to come in. We have to line up with the Bible. Notice as he goes on and he gives another prayer request. That I pray that you be sincere and without offense. I pray that you may be sincere and without offense offense. Again, we're learning from the Apostle Paul as he's telling the church of Philippi how he's praying for them. Notice at the end of verse number 10, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Now that word sincere carries the idea to be tested by sunlight. We'll cover this in just a second, but that's an important definition. To be tested by sunlight and it carries the idea of an unmixed substance. Once again, it's carrying the idea of purity. Now remember, Paul prayed differently for different churches. For this church who wants to join up with the, doc- with the doctrine to go in um, soul winning, to go with the gospel. He's trying to put an emphasis, I'm praying that you stay pure. Pure. That you love, but you stay pure. And I'm putting these tests. I'm praying that you learn how to test things. Again, the word sincere carries the idea to be it by sunlight, unmixed substance. It carries the idea of purity. Now, there's two ideas in this part of the prayer. First of all, he warned about being wrong by sincerity and being right by being insincere. Someone who is wrong but sincere is deceived. Now we know lots of people who sincerely believe that mother nature is going to heal me. We sincerely believe that earth is going to heal itself. They sincerely believe that Muhammad is right. You pick the thing. They believe it with all of their heart. They're sincere for it. They don't think they're lying. They think they're correct. But they can be sincere and incorrect. And it doesn't do them any good. Well the same thing is true about someone who is right. But not being sincere. They're playing games. Sure, I love Jesus. I can't wait to get out of here to go do whatever I want. Sure, I read my Bible. I read one verse last week. I'm good. And they're, being, they're playing games. They're playing games with God. They're not going to be much of a help. They're going to be a hindrance when it's all said and done. I've got things myself. And they're just playing games. They're lying. They're playing games about Christianity. Now, for example, let's take this. Let's say that we had two peop- a person who sincerely took two pills. He thought they were an aspirin. So I've got a headache. Oh, I found these two pills. I'm going to take them. They're aspirin. They're going to help me out. He can believe sincerely that it's going to help him. But if it's poison, is it going to do him any good no matter how sincere he is? Absolutely not. His sincerity will not save him. Whereas the hypocrite knows the truth and he doesn't practice it. Yeah, yeah, I know I should read my Bible. Yeah, yeah, I know I should go to church. Yeah, yeah, I know I'm supposed to. yeah. And so Paul is saying, I want you to be sincere. I want you to be true. And I want to be examined by life, light. Now, what does this mean to be examined by daylight? Well, in Paul's day, an unscrupulous sculptor may carve too deeply inside of a marble statue. So remember back in the Roman days and the uh, Greek days they would have those beautiful statues. And so let's say that I commissioned to have a statue. I want to have something of me and how great I am. And so I commissioned someone to create a nice little bust, a headshot of me. And so as they're carving it, and can you imagine what what practice that would take to take a little piece of granite and just chisel away until you got a a beautiful sculpted face? It's something I can't do, so you would hire someone to do it. And as they're sculpting, they kind of get distracted. What do you say, honey? And click. Oh no, I cut too deep. What do I do? I'm almost finished with it. And so what they would do, these unscrupulous sculptors, is that they would put wax in the marble and they would put it to cover the holes and it would look just like marble there you go nice look how beautiful that was but the problem is is that the customer then would test it by sunlight they would take the hot mediterranean sun and put the wax or put the statue there and the wax would melt off and what would happen is that big cut would be examined but they've already paid for it can't take it back now. In fact, they actually started making contracts with customers that would learn to write in without wax in their contracts for the marble orders. Now, this idea of with, um, <laughs> to be tested by sunlight carries the idea where we get our word sincere. It carries the idea that when you're tested by the light of the sun, that there's no holes. Nothing's going to max away. It's going to be exactly what you should be. And that's the idea of sincere. It carries the idea that it's genuine. There's no fake parts on it. There's nothing in there that is baloney, that is fake, that it is all genuine and exactly what was supposed to be made. Does it make sense? And Paul is praying that you may be sincere and without offense. Until when? Until the day of Christ. And of course we've talked about the day of Christ. Until Jesus comes back. My prayer for you church. Is that you be sincere and without offense until Jesus comes home. That you be exactly what God has made you. Not full of holes. Not one thing at church. And then in your private life your Christianity is all in shambles. And it just held together with duct tape. That it is something that is real and legitimate so God can use you. There's one more thing that he prays in here. He prays that ye are filled with the fruits of righteousness. I pray that you are filled with the fruits of righteousness. Now remember the context of Philippians chapter one and the context of this. Paul is in jail and he's writing to the church of Philippi because they are fellow helpers for the gospel. They're fellow laborers in this. They have a fellowship in the gospel. And as we're going to see later on, because of the furtherance of the gospel, and later on for the faith of the gospel, that they are joining up with him, and that they're able to serve God better together because they're partnering together. That the church of Philippi is helping the apostle Paul accomplish what God has given them to do. And so with it, we know the context is soul winning. The context is getting people saved. The context is the gospel. But I would, verse number 11, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. Well, let's define our terms. What do we mean by the fruits of righteousness? Well, it so happens that the Bible defines itself. Look with me, if you don't mind, in the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs chapter 11. Paul is saying, I pray that you are filled with the fruits of righteousness, What are these fruits of righteousness? Notice with me in the book of Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs chapter 11. (coughs) Proverbs chapter 11, notice with me in verse 13. Proverbs 11, and not 13, 30. Proverbs 11, 30. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. You know what Paul's prayer for the church of Philippian? I pray that you win many souls. I pray that you are a soul winner. And that you have the fruit of the righteous. That you are winning people to the Lord. That as I'm in Rome in jail. I'm making a commitment as we saw um, on Sunday morning. I'm making a commitment to you that everyone that comes to my path. I'm going to witness. And my prayer for you is that you be a soul winner too. That you're doing your part and I'm doing my part. And we're going to do this for the fellowship of the gospel. And that everything that's happened is for the furtherance of the gospel. And by us working together, we're going to strive for the faith of the gospel. That we all have a part to play. And I'm praying that you see a lot of people come to know Christ as your Savior. Isn't that wonderful prayers from the Apostle Paul? As we see, how is he praying Now, as we have a church that has a desire to be the Philippian church, and I think we could say that. I think if we did a survey we say, all right, who wants to be the church of Corinth? That no one's going to volunteer. We want to be this church that is doing right, that is helping the Apostle Paul. We want to be this type of church. So how do we pray for one another? How should the pastor pray for you? How should you pray for one another? We should pray these things that are found in the book of Philippians. I pray that your love may abound more and more. That you pray that you have love by by discernment. You have love by knowledge, that it grows I pray that you approve the things that are excellent, that you compare everything to scripture, and that we keep a purity in here, that we don't allow things that are not pure so we're not shipwrecked, so we can continue to be effective. He says, and I pray that you may be sincere and without offense. I'm praying that what you have is genuine, that there's no fake parts to you, that your Christianity as a whole is real and consistent, even when it is examined by light, And then Paul says, I also praying for you that you become a soul winner, that the fruit of the righteous is the tree of life and he that winneth souls is wise. I'm praying that you have the fruit of righteousness. I'm praying that because of your efforts, because of what you do, that many people are going to come to know Christ as the Savior. Isn't that a wonderful prayer? To be praying that many people would come to know Christ. That many people would be in heaven. Many people would be forgiven. Because of the efforts of the church of Philippi. And as we pray for that too. That we would have that same desire. That because of the labors and the fruits. And the efforts of the Riverview Baptist Church. That we would see many people come to know Christ as their Savior. This is the type of prayer that we should have one to another as we go on. That we should learn how to pray for others. Again, as you start now, sure, you got your checklist. Lord, please pray so-and-so and and pray for so-and-so, pray for so-and-so. And And then you get super spiritual, bless so-and-so, bless so-and-so, bless so-and-so. But how do we pray for them? Well, these are how we should pray for them, especially as we're joining together for the fellowship of the gospel, that we want to see people come to get saved. This is what we should pray. How much purity and sincerity is going to affect our testimony. That those people over there, they may be crazy, but they're real. They believe that their God is real. And because of that, I'm willing to listen to them. Because they think their God is real. There's something genuine about them. I'm willing to hear them out. That's what we should have. And that's what we should be known for. Is that genuineness. For the purpose... That we could tell others about Christ without hypocrisy. And that we could do it without offense. That we may know him. And so here we could see Paul's prayer for this church. This I pray.